Well, it's good to see you all again tonight. Before we get into it tonight, I'm just going to commend some books to you because you may not have realised yet, but we have an absolutely fantastic bookstore provided over there by The Wandering Bookseller, who um, they provide great Christian bookshops bookstalls really for lots and lots of uh, different Christian conferences around the place. They're doing a fantastic job. And the choice of great Christian books up there is quite staggering. Um, it would be crazy for you to get through to the end of this week and not have spent a good half an hour just browsing over there and making a bit of a wish list of the top 15 books you would like to read. I'm not joking. 15 is a small number. There are so many great books over there that 15, just set yourself 15 to make a list of 15 and then gradually buy a few and start to work your way through. So I thought I'd just commend a few to you. Last night we talked about that easy doctrine, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, and I know you're all, all over it, right? So, but in case you've got a friend who hasn't quite understood it all, there's lots of great books up there on the Trinity. We're going to throw a few up on the screen, I think, our first picture. There you go. Here's three books on the Trinity that I found up there. One by Andrew Moody, who is an evangelical Christian down in Melbourne. An old classic by an Australian theologian who's now gone to be with the Lord Jesus called The Everlasting God. That one's over there. And also a great one written by an English evangelical, Sam Albury, called Connected. So how would you pick which one to read? Well, if you sort of go, I'm, I'm sort of an art student, I want to sort of go for the old school, sort of give me the hard stuff, make me think a little bit, go for The Everlasting God. There's a bit of a clue. If, if you um, want to read something that's sort of written really recently, in an Australian sort of context, go for The Light of the Sun. If you want something that's going to, maybe it's a, just a little bit, easier, maybe going to connect you in a little bit more with some of the pastoral implications and how it changes your life, go for Connected, okay? So there's, why don't you go and have a look there? The other topic that I just picked up on, I thought, there's lots of books up there that cover lots of situations you find in life. There's whole sections of books on prayer, whole sections of book on, books on work, but I picked up a whole bunch of books that are on suffering, and one of the reasons that it's important to read books on suffering is because you will suffer. Don Carson wrote one book on suffering called How Long, O Lord? That was one of the ones down in the bottom right corner there, um, which book I read a long time ago. I read this when I was a university student. And one of the lines that he says in here is, if you haven't suffered yet, it's just because you haven't lived long enough. Suffering is a reality for all of us in God's world. And the reason he wrote this book, he said, is don't give this book to somebody who is suffering. That's not what he's written it for. You need to read other sorts of books. This book is to prepare you for the time when you will suffer. That's a great book, How Long Our Lord. And other people now have written other sorts of books on that as well. Uh, here's a couple, one by Tim with God through pain and suffering. Lots of copies of that up there on the bookstall. Then, and two written by people here in Sydney, one by Paul Grimmond called Suffering Well, and I love the subtitle, The Predictable Surprise of Christian Suffering. That's true, it is predictable. 
We know we're going to suffer, but it always catches us as a surprise. What do you do about that? Paul Grimman, Suffering Well, and another one by Ray Gallier called From Here to Eternity, Assurance in the Face of Sin and Suffering, where he works through one particular chapter of the Bible, Romans chapter 8, to draw comfort from God's Word in the face of suffering. So there's some things for you to think about, some books on the Trinity, some books on the suffering. Go to the bookshop, spend at least half an hour there, spend as much money as God's given you to spend on His work, and make a list of 15 books to read. Okay, and I'm not getting a cut. Let's get into it. Talk number three. The Holy Spirit in me, in you. What is the Holy Spirit doing in us as individuals? The whole Bible is the record of what God has done and will do about humanity's biggest problem. And humanity's biggest problem is the problem of the human heart. Not our biological heart, our spiritual heart, our soul. Humanity's greatest problem is not global warming, it's not world poverty, it's not political oppression, it's not racism or sexual discrimination, it's not even child abuse in the church or domestic violence, as horrific as they are, those are all terrible symptoms of the spiritual heart problem. That as humankind, we've rejected the one true living God. We've rejected His Word and we've rejected His way. We refuse to have Him as our God and let Him show us the right way to live in His world and all those problems are the result. Even worse... By putting ourselves against him in that way, we've made ourselves liable to his judgment, his right condemnation of us for the way that we've rejected him, mistreated one another, and failed to live as he's called us to live as his loved creatures in the world. The whole Bible is the record of what God has done in human history to fix that problem. He tells us he doesn't want any of us to suffer the condemnation we each deserve. He made us and he loves us, which is why Jesus came, God the Son taking our place as one of us under his Father's judgment, bearing my guilt and yours as our representative and substitute so that we can be forgiven and blameless in his sight. That's why Christians make such a big deal of the cross of Jesus. Without Jesus' death in our place under the condemnation we deserve, we have no hope. There is no way that we can be right with God. But even though at the cross Jesus dealt with our punishment, it still leaves the fundamental problem untouched, our heart problem. Do you see that? Dealt with the punishment that comes from the problem but hasn't actually addressed the problem. If God wants to really fix the problem of human rejection of Him, then He has to do something about our heart problem not just provide forgiveness through the cross, as costly as that was. And that is the wonderful new covenant promise that God does make all throughout the Old Testament, that one day God will put his powerful, transforming spirit into the hearts of all his people. We looked at that promise in 
Back in talk one yesterday afternoon from Joel chapter 2, you've been starting to explore it in faculty time, looking at Ezekiel 36. No longer would people turn their backs on God. No longer would they reject his word and his way and chase after other gods who aren't really gods at all. Because once God's put his powerful, transforming spirit into people's hearts, they will want to follow him. That is a big deal. That God puts his spirit into people's hearts and changes it so that they want to love and serve him. That is a very big deal. And Jesus announced that that great moment of the Spirit being poured out into the hearts of all of God's people, that that was about to happen. He announced that after his resurrection in Acts chapter 1. He told his disciples, wait in Jerusalem until you've received the promised Holy Spirit. Don't go anywhere, he said, because that great moment that you've been waiting for is about to take place. And then... The moment arrived. The book of Acts, chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues, as of fire, appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now, there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, in our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even upon my slaves, both men and women. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy." And I will show portents in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. 
Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You that are Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know, this man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up having freed him from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One experience corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Fellow Israelites, I may say to you confidently of our ancestor David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would put one of his descendants on his throne. Foreseeing this, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, saying he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh experience corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you for your children and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized. And that day about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, 
the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. All those centuries of waiting now fulfilled in this group of 120 followers of Jesus. But it's not just for them, as we heard there at the end, the promise of the Holy Spirit is now freely available to everyone who comes to Jesus in faith. What effect does the Spirit have in your life when you come to faith in Jesus? That's what we're going to focus on for the rest of tonight. Tonight, we're going to look at what the Spirit does in you as an individual. Tomorrow night, what the Spirit does in us together as God's people. And Thursday night, what the Spirit does in the world. I'm hoping that tonight, you are overwhelmed by the magnificence of what God promises to do in your life through the Spirit poured out through Jesus. I'm going to try to rain down truth after truth from God's Word upon you. Because the list of things that God is doing in you and will do in you by His Spirit is phenomenal. It's gobsmackingly brilliant and amazing. And if you're already a follower of Jesus, then I hope you are deeply encouraged and joyful as a result. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you're not yet a Christian, I hope that you will want in on this. Because the Spirit-filled life is what God wants for you. It's what He wants to give you, if only you'll come to Jesus in repentance and faith. So let's get into it. Page 24 of your outlines. Here are 11 spiritual truths from the New Testament, and yes, I think you'll hardly believe number four. The Spirit is, first of all, number one, the Spirit is the blessing poured out on all those who believe in Jesus. And I'm going to talk fast now, right? This is no light drizzle of truth. This is like a monsoonal downpour. Here we go. There on your page is the last little bit of Peter's speech that we just heard from Acts chapter 2. Peter calls people to repent and turn back to God by putting their faith in Jesus so that their sins might be forgiven and that they would all receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He makes it abundantly clear that the Spirit is promised to everyone who puts their faith in the Lord Jesus. When you put your faith in Jesus, you receive the Spirit. No ifs, no buts. That does raise a potentially controversial point. Some Christians claim that there's a second blessing or maybe a second baptism of the Spirit available for Christians beyond conversion. Some would even say that that's key to living a Christian life where you experience victory over sin. I remember talking with a friend after church one morning and she was sharing with me how she'd been chatting to an older Christian neighbour. And my friend had shared with her neighbour how she was struggling a bit as a Christian. Her neighbour's response, you need to be baptised with the Spirit. You're a Christian, but you haven't received the fullness of the Spirit in your life. That's why you're struggling. Is there any biblical basis for this second blessing or second baptism of the Spirit? Well, there's two different sorts of passages that are usually cited as evidence for a second blessing of the Spirit. They all come from the book of Acts. First are the three I've listed on your outline for you. In Acts chapter 2, which was what we just had read for us, the day of Pentecost, where Jesus' followers, and think about it, Jesus' followers, they're obviously already believers, aren't they? But they receive the Spirit. Or Acts chapter 8, where after Philip preaches to them, some Samaritans come to faith, but then they don't receive the Spirit 
until Peter, the apostle, comes and prays for them, then they receive the Spirit. Or Acts chapter 19, where Paul meets some disciples, we're told, who've never heard of the Holy Spirit, but who subsequently receive the Spirit when they're baptized in the name of Jesus. What's going on here? Remember yesterday afternoon when we were looking at some of those crazy spirit-empowered leaders of the Old Testament, you know, who were ripping lions apart and stuff like that? I made the point then that we have to read these history accounts in the overall trajectory of the Bible. The same applies here to these accounts in Acts. When we read all the way through the book of Acts, turns out that each of those moments, Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 19, each of those moments are quite exceptional. They occur at significant moments in the expansion of the Christian church. Pentecost, which we just had read for us, that was clearly an of, a, a very special, unique moment when the spirits first poured out. The expansion of the people of God to include the Samaritans was a really significant breakthrough that was so exceptional that when the Christians in Jerusalem heard that the Samaritans, for goodness sake, had accepted the word of God about Jesus, about him being the Messiah, they sent Peter and John, two of the most senior apostles, to go and check it out. And in Acts 19, you have some disciples who've never heard of a Holy Spirit and had only received the baptism of John the Baptist. That is, they'd never actually been baptized as Christians with faith in Jesus. They were seriously lacking in their grasp of the Christian faith. One wonders really how they were Christians or whether they were just disciples of John the Baptist. The significance there seems to be that they were righteous old covenant believers evidenced by the fact that they'd undergone baptism through John the Baptist, rather than being new covenant believers in Jesus the Christ. So there's a significant changing of era in them receiving the Spirit, the sign of the new covenant, as they come to faith in Jesus. So each of those moments is really quite exceptional. And I don't think any of them will really serve as a suitable paradigm for all Christians that all Christians are to receive a second spirit baptism. Rather, it seems God deliberately brought in an unusual delay for those particular believers in receiving the spirit, and he did that to mark out a new milestone in the expansion of God's kingdom at each point. The other set of passages that is used sometimes to support a second blessing theology of the spirit comes from the many examples in Acts where people who are already believers are filled with the Spirit. So, for example, in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, the believers, they already have faith in Jesus. They're gathered and suddenly they pray for boldness and they're filled with the Spirit. Well, that's clearly a second sort of blessing of the Spirit, isn't it? Now, this requires some careful thinking here. Most importantly, we have to get on top of the way Luke uses the two different words, full and filled. I'm now on page 25. The way Luke uses them, being full of the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit, don't seem to be the same thing. The full of language seems to be about a settled or complete state of affairs. I'll give you some other non-Spirit examples. In Acts chapter 13, Elymas is described as full of of deceit and villainy. 
That's probably not a good thing to be full of, is it? Full of deceit and villainy. Or Tabitha in Acts 9, much better, is full of good works and acts of charity. The being full of something means what characterizes your life. It's not a momentary thing, it characterizes your life. So here and there we meet Christians in Acts who are full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen in chapter 6, who was full of the Spirit and wisdom. Barnabas in chapter 11, who was full of the Spirit and faith. The disciples in chapter 13, who were full of joy and the Holy Spirit. These are qualitative statements about the thoroughgoing extent of the Spirit's work in their lives. So all Christians have the Spirit, but not all Christians are full of the Spirit. Not in this particular sense, such that the the fruit of the Spirit's work are pervasively evident in maturity in our lives. Though hopefully you want to be a person, a Christian, who is full of the Spirit. Wouldn't that be great to be that person? Well, if the full of language is about a settled or characteristic state of affairs, what's the filled with language about? Well, the filled with language seems to be about a momentary experience. Again, I'll give you some non-spirit examples from the book of Acts. The crowd in Acts chapter 3 are filled with wonder and amazement, though they don't always remain in wonder and amazement forever, ever after, right? It's just a momentary. They're filled with wonder and amazement in that moment. Or the city of Ephesus in chapter 19 is filled with confusion, not permanently, but in the very midst of a riot, they were filled with confusion. Similarly, at various points, Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit, particularly when challenged about proclaiming Jesus in a scary situation. So the apostles at Pentecost are filled with the Spirit. Peter facing the Sanhedrin, the Jewish rulers in chapter 4, is filled with the Spirit. All the disciples, when threatened by the Jewish authorities in chapter 4, and the result of being filled with the Spirit in this way is that you're empowered to proclaim God, uh, proclaim Jesus boldly in that moment. So let's put all that together. You can have the Spirit. In fact, as Christians, we all do have the Spirit, but not be full of the Spirit. You can be full of the Spirit and still be filled from time to time without any Spirit having leaked out of you. You know, you're not like a bucket that has to, I was full of the Spirit and then I lost some, so I was... No. Uh, You can be full of the Spirit and still filled with the Spirit in particular moments that you might proclaim Christ boldly. What all this means is the, and they were filled with the Spirit moments in Acts, is not indicating a unique second blessing experience that ought to be common to all Christians. I really like the way Don Carson puts it there on your, on your booklet. Although, he says, I find no biblical support for a second blessing theology, I do find support for a second, third, fourth, and fifth blessing theology. As those who have the Spirit, we should all be seeking to become people full of the Spirit, as well as seeking His filling to empower us to proclaim Jesus boldly. Now, if you want to dig down a bit more into this and really sort it out and push back on some of this, 
Go to Moose's elective because he's going to tackle all of this over the next couple of days in his elective. So go tomorrow or on Thursday. Well, that's number one. And I'm spending a lot of time there on number one. I'm going to smash through some more of these 11 great truths about the Spirit. Number two, the Spirit unites believers to Jesus and thence to each other. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, For in the one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, that is the body of Christ, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. John Calvin, there on your page, explains the significance of this. He says, We must now examine this question. How do we receive those benefits which the Father bestowed on his only begotten Son? Bestowed on him not for Christ's own private use, but that he might enrich poor and needy men. First, then, he says, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we're separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. All that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. It is through the secret energy of the Spirit by which we come to enjoy Christ and all his benefits. The Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually unites us to himself. So without being united to Jesus, all that God achieved in Jesus in his death and resurrection, your forgiveness, eternal life, adoption as his children, fellowship with God, all of that would be out of reach. You have to be united to Jesus so that what he's won can be shared with you. And the Bible's answer is that is precisely what the Spirit does. We are united to Jesus by faith through the Spirit. So the fact that it's the Spirit that unites us to the Lord Jesus is a really big deal. Number three, not just God with us temporarily, but God in us permanently. I sometimes like to play with people's minds a little bit and ask them this question. I say, if you could choose between having the Spirit, which you've got now, or having Jesus physically present with you for the next three years of your life, which would you choose? And usually, almost everyone says, I'll go with Jesus. I can understand that. Who doesn't long to see Jesus face to face and praise, praise him that one day we will see him face to face for all eternity? That'll be fantastic, won't it? It's just that Jesus would prefer you to have the Spirit, and it's not because he doesn't love you. The problem is we just don't realize how significant the Spirit's present presence in each of our lives really is. What a massive transforming difference he makes. But Jesus understood. That's why he said it's better that he go away so that we can have the Spirit. Look how Jesus puts it there in John 16 on page 26. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The advocate, the paraclete, is the title Jesus gives the Spirit. 
It literally means one who draws alongside, usually to offer comfort or support or to represent you. That's how Jesus conceived of the Spirit in your life. The Spirit is God's personal presence drawing alongside you. And to Jesus' mind, it was to our advantage that he went away to be with his Father after his resurrection because then he can send the Spirit to be our advocate, our paraclete, the one who draws alongside us. And whereas Jesus was only physically present with the disciples for three years, the Spirit will be with us forever. Look at John 14. Jesus said, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. Notice there he says, I will send another advocate. Jesus had been their advocate, their paraclete, drawing alongside them. But now he will send from the Father another, the Spirit, to be with them forever. And unlike Jesus, it won't just be with them. The Spirit, he is going to be in them. He will be in them, God's powerful personal presence in their heart and mind. Which brings us to number four the one I think you'll hardly believe. This spiritual truth addresses the fundamental heart problem that we spoke about at the beginning. Every one of us who comes to Jesus in trust and repentance is no longer in the flesh, but in the spirit. Let's look at Romans chapter 8 there on your page. Let me read the first four verses of that chapter, page 26. Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemns sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Notice the first thing he said there, if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation before God for you. Why? Not because of your good deeds. Not because of your sincerity. Not even because of your sorrow for the bad things that you've done. That's not why there's no condemnation for you. There's no condemnation for you before God because, verse 3, God sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to deal with sin and condemn my sin, your sin, in the flesh of his, in his flesh, the flesh of Jesus. That's the good news of Jesus' cross. No condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ by faith. But Christians are not just forgiven. Christians are transformed. I do wonder if you believe that. That Christians are transformed. Or do you just think we're forgiven? Notice how Paul then describes Christians here in verse 4. 
Christians are those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That phrase, to walk, is a lovely metaphor for living your life because you walk through life. And Christians walk through life not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What's this distinction, though, between flesh and spirit? We need to understand this. To our ears, flesh and spirit sounds a bit like physical versus spiritual. But that's not what Paul means. By flesh, he means a life lived controlled by sin and sinful desires. And that's contrasted with life lived controlled by the Spirit. So Paul's saying Christians walk not controlled and submerged in sinful desires. They walk controlled and directed by the Spirit. Then in verses 5 to 8, Paul points out the complete contrast between life in the flesh and life in the Spirit. Have a look there on your page. Verse 5, Paul says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see, he's saying you cannot be in both the flesh camp and the spirit camp at once. You're in one camp or the other. If you're walking according to the flesh, then you're hostile to God and actually unable to submit to his law. The spirit and the flesh are completely at odds with one another. They're not neighbours living side by side on the street. Oh, I'll just pop into the spirit. Oh, I'll just pop back to the flesh. No, They're completely opposite sides of the street. And then Paul makes his point, verse 9, but you, speaking to Christians, you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Paul can't say it more plainly, can he? You, Christian person, are not in the flesh. How does he know that? Well, because the Spirit is in you. And since the Spirit is in you, you're in the Spirit. And therefore, you're not in the flesh. Because the flesh and the Spirit are on opposite sides of the street. You can't be on both sides of the street at once. This is one of those truths that we so easily forget. It is true that our struggle with sin is always with us until Jesus' return. But you have to know who you are. Or maybe where we are, what side of the street we're on. We're not in the flesh to be controlled by sin and sinful desires. No, we are now in the Spirit because the Spirit is in us. Paul then concludes in verses 12 to 13 with how this should affect our walk, our life. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
since we're in the Spirit, we're to put to death the deeds of the body. The deeds of the body means the misdeeds of the body, the sins that linger on in our lives, despite the fact that we're now in the Spirit. This is what practical holiness looks like. This is what having God's presence in you empowers you to do, to put to death the deeds of the body, the sins of the body, by His Spirit that is living within you. Now, put to death, if you think about that for a moment, put to death is very extreme language, isn't it? We don't, we don't go around putting things to death. Not usually. Maybe cockroaches. Actually, it's interesting. I'll tell you a story. Years ago, finally you say, tell me a story. Years ago, when I was working on this very passage from Romans 8, I was sitting there at my desk, Bible open, Romans 8, thinking hard about Romans 8, this very truth. I was sitting at my desk when, boom, this weird-looking insect, which seriously was about Okay, like it was, but it was big insect. It just, it fell. I don't know where, I don't know where, it, from the Lord, I don't know where it came from. It just, it fell out of somewhere and landed, pump, right on the desk, right next to me. And I don't know what it was, but it was weird. It was a weird, weird looking thing. It, it looked like the ugly offspring of a cockroach mating with a grasshopper. Like it seriously... It was out of a B-grade horror flick. It was gross. To tell you the truth, as I looked at it, I, thought, I was completely uninterested. I'm not a biologist. I was completely uninterested in trying to... Ooh, a very interesting... No. <laughs> I was not interested in playing around with this thing at all. I, gr I grabbed an old magazine from the bin next to my desk. I rolled it up. And I kid you not, it's a true story. I said out loud, there was no one in the room except me and this thing, I, I said out loud, I don't know what you are, <laughs> but you are going to die. <laughs> and I smacked it with a lot of nervous energy. Maybe too hard since its guts then ended up all over my laptop. But it's better to be safe than sorry. I showed extreme prejudice, didn't I, as the phrase goes? Extreme prejudice. I put it to death. As those who are in the Spirit, that's what we are to do to sin in our life. No mercy to sin in our own life. No playing around with it. Because I'm not in the flesh. I'm in the spirit. Since God's spirit lives in me. In you. So don't walk according to the flesh. By the spirit, kill off sin. Kill off the misdeeds of your body in your life. With the power God gives you by the spirit. I'm saying that to you, and I'm thinking about my own sin. 
Are you thinking about yours? Am I going to do business with God about that? Am I actually going to show extreme prejudice and kill it off? Are you? You can because you are in the spirit, not in the flesh. You've come to faith in Jesus Christ and I know it because his spirit is in you. There is no sin too dark, too deep, too entrenched for the spirit of the living God to deal in, in your life. It might not be easy. It might not even be instantaneous. You may need all the help that God gives you through his word, by his spirit, amongst his people with the encouragement of your brothers and sisters in Christ. But don't play around with it. You're not in the flesh. Maybe there's things that you need to bring to Jesus tonight. Then do it. Receive his forgiveness. Praise him for his mercy. Embrace the transformation that he wants to work in you by his spirit. And you can see on page 27 what this means in practice. Walk by the spirit. Paul writes to the Galatian Christians in Galatians chapter 5, walk by the spirit. He says, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Actually, literally, it's much stronger. He says, walk by the Spirit and you will certainly not complete the desires of the flesh. If you jump down to the very last verses in that passage, verses 24 and 25, you get a similar message. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. That's again, isn't it, a very graphic image of how as Christians we're to relate to sin. We've crucified the flesh with its sinful passions and desires. Instead, now as those who live by the Spirit, we're to be guided by the Spirit. Or sometimes it's translated as keep in step with the Spirit. It means to walk in like an orderly fashion, like a soldier marching in rank. Since we have new life in Christ by the Spirit, we're to walk in tandem with the Spirit instead of gratifying the desires of the flesh. And getting really practical, what does that look like, to walk like that, to be led like that? Well, in the middle of that passage there in Galatians 5, Paul helps us out. He has a list there of the works of the flesh, or at least some of them. These are the sort of things we have crucified in coming to Jesus. These are the things we have to put to death in the power of the Spirit. He says there, verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are obvious, Fornication, which means any sort of sexual relationship outside of male-female marriage. Impurity, licentiousness, which is where you disregard all normal restraints. You sort of just do whatever you want to do. 
Idolatry, giving yourself in worship to anything other than one true living God. It might be another religion. It might be greed, sex, ambition, power. Sorcery, tying up with magic and witchcraft. Enmities, you know, where you're actively opposed or hostile to other people. Strife, you know, going around causing trouble. Jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, you know, where you're arguing or causing division. Factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing. You know, carousing is the stupid things you do when you're off your face. That's what carousing is. These are, and he says, and things like these. So obviously it's not an exhaustive list. Those are the works of the flesh. They're what we're to kill off in the power of the Spirit. And he says, I'm warning you as I warned you before. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then positively, Paul shows what it looks like to walk by the Spirit. Verse 22. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. How are you going at cultivating the fruit of the Spirit in your life? That's a list of fruit there that's worth saying slowly, isn't it? And in fact, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to say it slowly. If you've got a pen there, just between you and the Lord, just give yourself a bit of a how I'm going on each of these, right? Maybe between one to five, you know? Number five? Doing well. Praise Jesus for that. Number one, got a long way to go in cultivating this fruit of the Spirit. Just, just between you, as I read it out, just think, how am I going at that? Give yourself just a, a vibe, right? Here we go. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Are those fruit apparent in your life as a Christian? Are they apparent with increasing abundance? Are you growing in those fruit, in the power of the Spirit within you? Now, this work of killing off sin and growing in spirit fruitfulness is something that we do and something that God does in us. And this is important to understand. It's both God's work and ours. Let me show this to you. You can see one side of it there in 1 Thessalonians 4. Finally, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you learned from us how you ought to live and please God, as in fact you're doing, you should do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Paul says to them, keep it up. In fact, live God's way more and more. He wants them to put in the effort. But the other passage emphasizes that it's God who works this transformation. 
For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, And all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, the Spirit. It's the Spirit who is affecting this transformation in us. So how does this work? That it's both God and us. The Spirit is God's powerful transforming presence in our life. He's the one who's transforming us through our effort at killing off sin and growing in the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit empowers your effort. Without His power, without His presence in you, you'd still be in the flesh. You would not and could not please God. But the Spirit enables and empowers us to grow in holiness. I think of it like a hand inside a glove. You know, you've got your hand inside a glove and you're moving it around. Is the glove moving? Yes. Is the hand moving? Yes. The Spirit is the, is the hand inside the glove empowering our walk in a way that pleases God. And like a hand inside a glove... You can distinguish them, but you can't fully separate them. You can't really separate the Spirit's work in me from my effort because He enables and empowers my effort. All I know is that it's the Spirit that empowers my effort. I don't feel anything different. You might think, oh, when the Spirit powerfully works in me, surely then I will feel something. No, you know what it's like when the Spirit powerfully works in you? You shut up when you're really angry at your parents. There's a powerful working of the Spirit in you. And you say, well, I just, I just decided to shut my mouth. Yes, you did. And it was the Spirit that decided to, that empowered you to make that. You see, the Spirit works through and empowers your effort. You can't just sit back and be passive. It's no use saying, okay, God, I get it. I need to be more patient. Okay, God, make me more patient. I'm ready. Hit me now. <laughs> Impatiently so. <laughs> Give me that spiritual steroid, Lord, to take me to the next level of joy and kindness and self-control. Oh, I guess he didn't do it. That's not how it works. Because it's His work and our work. The Spirit works in and through and inseparably from my own effort. If I want to be more patient, I'm going to need to work at it. It's a spiritual fruit, but it takes training, discipline, work on my part. And as I do so more and more with the power and energy that the Spirit gives me, I will see more fruit from him in my life. Which brings me then to a question people sometimes have. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about grieving the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, the context in Ephesians 4 helps us understand. Have a look at the passage at the bottom of page 27. Paul says, You were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, 
and to clothe yourselves with the new self created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's exactly, talking about exactly this sort of killing off of sin and growing in the fruit of the Spirit that we've been talking about tonight. And then he gives some examples, and I'm going to jump down into verse 29. He says, Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you were marked for a, with a seal for the day of redemption. Context, I think, makes it clear there that to grieve the Holy Spirit means not doing what the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do. When we don't kill off sin, when we refuse to put off the old self, when we don't strive to grow in godliness and holiness, that's when we grieve the Holy Spirit. We make him sad because he's living within us and that's what he's seeking to do in us. So don't make the Spirit sad. Don't grieve the Spirit. In the power of the Spirit within you, kill off sin in your life. Cultivate the Spirit's fruit in your life. Pick one of those fruit of the Spirit that you scored a bit low on. Work on it for a week in the power of the Spirit in your life. Then pick another one. See how you can be led by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, and in this way, He will transform you more and more into the image of Jesus. I've taken a long time on truth number four because it's so important. It's so foundational for understanding our life as a Christian. But there's a whole lot more we could say about the Spirit. If you look at page 28, there's another three truths about the Spirit. I don't have time to talk through them in detail. I'm just going to smash through it in a couple of sentences each. The Spirit is God's seal on believers that they are His. Not a seal like an animal, like, or, 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 or. Yes, the Spirit is God's seal, or, 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 sitting on top of believers that might know. The Spirit is a, like a letter, see, a, an, an old-fashioned seal that you get on the back of a letter. It's sort of like a tattoo. It sort of marks you out as belonging to God. The fact that you've got the Spirit in your life says, you belong to the one true living God. There's no doubt that you belong to God because he's put his spirit in you. God, the Holy Spirit, has taken up residence in your life. You clearly belong to him. Number six, the spirit testifies that we are God's children. If you're a Christian, have you ever, in your prayers, just cried out to God, Father, like maybe it was in the midst of a really hard time. Maybe in the midst of a temptation. Maybe it was in a moment when actually you were just full with thanksgiving and joy or, and you just, just, Father, you know that moment? That moment when you call out to God as Father like that, in dependent need or heartfelt thanksgiving or just in persevering prayer, that is evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in you and that you are a child of God. Because according to Romans 8, in the very act of approaching God as Father, it's His indwelling Spirit that's testifying to our individual human spirits that we are God's children, that we've been adopted into His family with the full rights of those who belong to His family. And the beautiful way God has organized things, even in our darkest moments, when we're crying out to our Heavenly Father for help, for his comfort, for his reassurance, as you call out to him in that very approach to him, 
there's your reassurance. That you're reaching out to Him. You know He is your Father. And that you've been adopted as His child because you approach Him like that as a child of a heavenly Father. That is the work of His Spirit in you. That you do that. Number seven, in the Spirit we relate to our heavenly Father. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, For through Christ both of us have access in one Spirit to the Father. Truth number two, remember, was that the Spirit unites us to Jesus the Son so we can share in His benefits. This is another aspect of that union that we have with the Son through the Spirit. Through the Spirit, we share in the fellowship that Jesus the Son enjoys with His Heavenly Father. Get that for a moment. The one true living God, God the Father, loves you with the same affection that he has for his son, Jesus. You get to share in that same fellowship that Jesus the Son enjoys with his heavenly Father. And similarly, through our union with Jesus in the Spirit, we share in the Son's mission from the Father to the world. James Torrance puts it like this, and I've tried to draw it for you in a diagram at the bottom of page 28. He says, The New Testament understanding of worship is as the gift of participating through the Spirit in the incarnate Son's communion with the Father and His mission from the Father to the world in a life of wonderful communion. And Romans 8 there on your page reassures us that even when we don't know what to pray because it all just seems too difficult or too hard or just beyond us the spirit intercedes for us the spirit prays with sighs too deep for words and intercedes for you according to the will of god so you know that those prayers will be heard and answered that's enormously comforting when life gets beyond you and maybe you've had these experiences where life is frankly way beyond you or guess what in those moments the spirit Praise for you with sighs too deep for words. There on your next page, there's even more. Number eight, the spirit as guarantee or arabon is the Greek word. Have a look at the first passage on page 29. From 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes... But it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us by putting his seal on us and giving us his spirit in our hearts as a first installment. This is this word, arabon. Arabon in Greek just means down payment. It's like a deposit, but it's this first installment of a total amount that's due. It's in the sense of, though, like a guarantee. So I guess we'd call it a non-refundable deposit. That's what the Spirit is, God's non-refundable deposit in you. God's put His Spirit into your heart as His guarantee that there is much, much more still to come. The Spirit's presence in your life points to a certain future, not a possible future, like maybe I'll graduate, maybe I'll be famous, it points to a certain and sure future. That's what God's Spirit is. That's who He is. God's personal guarantee to you of the future to come. What is that future that He guarantees? 
Have a look at the next passage there, Ephesians chapter 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and have believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance towards redemption as God's own people, to the praise of his glory. The Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance, what God has set aside for us. What's that inheritance? It's there in verse 14. Redemption as God's own people. But we can give that inheritance an even more specific shape. Arabon is used again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There on your page, I'll read from verse 1. For if we know that, sorry, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. If indeed when we have taken it off, we will not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan under our burden, because we wish not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Paul's talking about resurrection, our longing for physical life that, that's not overpowered by death, physical life that actually overpowers death and continues on, the resurrection that Jesus already enjoys and for which we groan and long, and one day it will be our experience too. And Paul says you can be absolutely certain that this is what is going to happen to you as a Christian when he returns. Absolutely certain. How come? Because God has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, a non-refundable deposit. The Spirit is God's personal guarantee to you that your inheritance is coming. Your complete redemption as God's possession including your future bodily resurrection from the dead. Now, I'll confess, I don't know what it's like to be set to receive a large financial inheritance. Some of you here, possibly being Sydney Uni, some of you might know that there's a large inheritance maybe coming your way. I know two people, well, not personally, who have a large inheritance. Can we put this up on the screen, please? These two, do you know who they are? They're Holly and Sam, brother and sister, sister and brother, Holly and Sam Branson, the adult children of Sir Richard Branson of Virgin Airlines and Virgin everything else. Estimates put Richard Branson's personal net worth at something like, yep, you got it right, $6.92 billion Australian. Now, $6.2 billion, it's hard to sort of picture what that is, so it looks like, a, it looks like this. <laughs> right? It's a lot of dollars. How much, how much dollars really is that? Well, hand up if you're in your final year of uni. How about if you're in your final year of uni, right? You're about to go and get, look, statistics tell me that the average wage you will earn as a first-year-out graduate in Australia at the moment, the average, is $55,000. Which means that they're set to inherit, yes, 126 years of the average Australian new graduate salary. 
they're going to earn, in one moment of inheritance, 125 years of your working life. That's a lot of money, isn't it? Two reflections on that, though. First is this. Holly and Sam's inheritance is not guaranteed, is it? Dad could change his mind and give it all away to someone else. The company could go bankrupt. Houses burn down. I'm not suggesting anyone should do that, by the way. <laughs> Inheritances can disappear. It's not guaranteed. But second is this. Even $6.92 billion won't buy them resurrection from the dead. It won't buy them eternity in the presence and blessing of God. It won't buy them, it can't buy them entry into the new creation. But that is what God has promised to everyone who puts their faith in Jesus. An inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, that can't be stolen or destroyed or worn out. And he has guaranteed it. He's given you the spirit in your own life as a non-refundable deposit, a guarantee of all of that that is to come. How rich do you feel right now? How rich should you feel right now? And I could go on. In the same vein, number nine there, the Spirit is described as just the first fruits of the greater blessings to come. You've got a fruit tree at your house? You grow a mandarin tree, a lemon tree, orange tree, something, something. You got a fruit tree? You know when the first fruit appears in the season and it's ready to eat and you eat it and you go, right, that's it for the season. No. <laughs> it's just the first fruit. And the whole idea of the first fruit is that when you enjoy the first fruit, you know that there's a whole harvest to come. Well, you know what? The Spirit who has taken up residence in your life is just the first fruit of his work in your life that you experience now. Just the first fruit. And there is a whole glorious spiritual harvest to come when he returns. He's the first fruits of greater blessings to come. And finally, truth number 10, or no, it's not finally, there's 11. Truth number 10, spiritual resurrection. God will raise us, we're told, with spiritual bodies. Now, spiritual bodies doesn't mean non-physical bodies. The resurrection body that the Lord will grant us will be like the resurrection of, of Jesus, flesh and bones. But Paul says in Corinthians that it will be a spiritual body. But what he means there is a body that is energized by the Spirit rather than energized by mere biology. It's, it's like a steam train. A steam train is not made of steam, is it? No. <laughs> a steam train is powered by, energized, driven by steam. Uh, the spiritual body that with which you'll be raised will be a physical body, but it will be 
spirit-driven. Like Jesus' resurrection body. And finally, while we wait for that day, what does the Spirit do in the meantime? Number 11, the Spirit empowers hope. Hope for Christians, hope in the Bible is a certain sure future that we wait for. It's not wishful thinking. It's the future that we know is coming. And what God does by the Spirit, there in Romans 15 verse 13, he says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. While we wait for God to deliver on these promises, he fills us with joy and peace and hope by the very Spirit who lives within us. Graham Cole, there on your page, summarises our situation. He says, God's people live in hope as we live in the tension of the now of the first fruits, but the not yet of glorification. Well, I'm out of time. Conclusion, who needs a spirit anyhow? Answer, we do. We all need the spirit. The spirit's work is fundamental and instrumental in every aspect of us receiving life from God in Christ, both now and in the future. We cannot live, we would not live as Christians without the Spirit. Or to put it another way, the Spirit is irreplaceable. You cannot drop the Spirit out of the picture. You can't replace Him with something else or someone else. You can't drop the Spirit and just have the Father and the Son. Jesus knew we needed a permanent advocate to be in us, not just with us, which is why he returned to the Father and asked for the Spirit to be poured out on his followers. You can't replace the Spirit with the Bible, even though the Bible is the Spirit's book, because it's the Spirit, not the Bible, that gives you new birth. It's because of the Spirit within us that we're no longer in the flesh. The Spirit is what empowers us, is who empowers us to put to death the very things that the Bible speaks against and to grow in the likeness of Jesus in fruit. And you can't even replace the Spirit with yourself, because without the Spirit, no one would want to please God. No one can please God without the Spirit working graciously within them. The Spirit is absolutely essential and irreplaceable in our lives as Christians. Well, I didn't think it was right to finish tonight then, talking about the life God wants to give us, without just mentioning that you have an opportunity to take hold of that life that really is life in Christ and by his spirit. If you're here this week and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, maybe you've been feeling the prompting of God's spirit that you need to take action. Maybe you've been hanging out in the EU all semester and most people around you might think that you're a Christian, but you've sort of worked out that you're probably not. And maybe you've worked out it's time to do something about that. Maybe you've been feeling the prompting of God's Spirit, tonight even, that you need to take action. Certainly that's one of the things that I've been praying for you and many people have been praying for this week here together. Maybe you feel the Spirit's invitation which is the invitation of Jesus himself to come to him. 
Yesterday afternoon, we talked about Jesus standing up in the temple and calling out, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and let the one who believes in me drink. For out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. That's the spirit, right, that he's talking about. And that's Jesus' invitation to you tonight. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me. Jesus invites you to put your belief, your faith, your trust in him. Receive the promised Holy Spirit in your life. And you can trust his promise. Jesus says there in Luke chapter 11, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Your Father in heaven wants to give you his Spirit. All you have to do is ask. And so if you know that you need this life that's only found in Jesus, then come. The Spirit himself invites you to receive life in Jesus through him. Revelation chapter 22, we're encouraged. The Spirit and the Bride, that is the church, say, come. And let everyone who hears say, come. And let everyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. So in a moment, I'm going to lead us in prayer. I'll pray for all of us. I'll pray for those who are still sorting this stuff about, about Jesus. And I'm going to pray for those who are at the point of committing themselves to Jesus, who want to receive this gift of the Spirit in their life and forgiveness with their Heavenly Father. Then after I pray, we're going to sing a song. And if you're ready to commit yourself to Jesus in trust, to receive this offer of life through the Spirit, then during that song, just make your way to the lounges at the back near the fireplace. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be worried. Don't be anxious about what those around you would think because this really, frankly, is not about them. This is about Jesus, his offer of new spiritual life to you. And it's an opportunity for you to start walking afresh in his spirit with all his power and joy and comfort and hope. So while we're singing, just make your way to the lounges at the back and some of our EU staff workers will be there and they'll love to pray with you. I'm going to give you a moment now just to reflect, gather your thoughts, and then I'm going to lead us in prayer and we'll sing. Come down, O love divine, seek you this soul of mine, and visit it with your own ardour glowing. O comforter, draw near, within my heart appear, and kindle it, your holy flame bestowing. O let it freely burn, till earthly passions turn to dust and ashes, in its heat consuming. And let your glorious light shine ever on my sight and clothe me round the while my path illuming. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you've done for us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you for his death for our sins, for his resurrection to new life in which we share, and for pouring out your spirit into all of those who put their faith in him. Thank you that this promise is for us and for all who are far off, that we might be forgiven in his name 
and born anew from your spirit. Help those of us who know you to walk in your spirit, to put to death the sin in our lives by your spirit, and to grow in your spirit's fruit so that we might be more like our Lord Jesus. Help those of us who are still yet to commit to Jesus to really know the truth, to investigate with open hearts and minds. And help those of us who are on the point of committing to Jesus to have the boldness, the humility, to take up Jesus' offer of new life in repentance and faith. We ask all this for your glory, in Jesus' name and in the power of your spirit. Amen.